I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... Felicidades. Good morning, Hope Ames. My name is Danny Householder. I continue to pray that I won't be fired for the clips that I show you <laughs> during sermons. I promise that here on Open Baptism Weekend, nobody's going to sneak up behind you and shove your face into a bowl of water. But baptism is it, it's a big deal. In fact, Jesus gives this as his very last command. After he has risen from the dead and he's about to ascend into heaven, Jesus makes a really big deal about baptism. Here, here's how he puts it to his disciples. You may know this as the Great Commission. He starts off by saying, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Talk about the biggest flex in the world. I'm God. I control everything. And he goes on to say, therefore, I've got the authority. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What do you think about baptism? To Jesus, it was a huge deal. When you think about it, do you have memories of it? Maybe you don't. Maybe you had your baptism before you can remember those things. But when you see something like this, this baptismal thought, what kind of memories come to your mind? Do you, do you think about other people being baptized? Do you think about your experience? What is it that comes to your mind? Is it something that excites you? For Jesus, it was so important. It excited him. He sent people out to go and do this very thing. But does it excite you? Maybe you're hearing about baptism and you're like, okay, this is a yawner and I just got to get through the end of the service. By the end, I might see some people get splashed with water, but I'm ready to leave because that's freaky and weird. Does baptism excite you? Now, if it doesn't, don't worry. You're not alone on this. Barnett came out with a study recently and it says this, only 35% of regular churchgoers experience connection with God through, com through common worship practices. Only 35% of people. I think that that means about 65% of people feel like Mr. Bean in a church service and they can't help but fall asleep. I see everything up here. I know it happens. It's okay. <laughs> I'll just start to talk faster. I'll tell more stories and show more Nacho Libre quotes, whatever it takes to deliver the gospel. We'll do it. Now, I want you to know this. If you're somebody who's like, yeah, I just don't really feel connection with God in church. Maybe you're somebody who got dragged here. Maybe you feel obligated to be here. Maybe it's like week in, week out that that's happening for you. One, you're not alone, but two, I'm not blaming you for that. The people to blame for that, it's, it's people like me. It's pastors, it's church leaders, it's ministers. I mean, really, it is our fault that we made you think that this Jesus thing, that being saved by grace was boring, that it wasn't exciting. So what does excite you? Like, what really gets your juices flowing? What's something that would make you stand out of your chair and throw your arms up in the air like you just don't care if you're having a hard time thinking of something, I, I invite you to take a look at this. Six to go. Got to go already. Kalsher, step back. Three for the win. He got it. Gabe Kalsher with 1.3. Anybody watch that live? You can cheer. All right. 
I lost my mind yesterday when I was watching that. I put the sermon down for like 30 minutes because I'm like, I'm not going to recover. My heart's pitter-pattering all over the place. Gabe Kalsher, he saved the day. And if I would go that crazy over the Cyclones winning over the Horned Frogs, who I'm cheering for in the national championship tomorrow night, no doubt about it. Big 12, go. <laughs> you try to kill us, we won't go away, will we? All right, you know, sorry. Getting distracted. The sermon's about Jesus. But if I'm going to get that excited about a victory over TCU, I mean, where is my heart when I see that Jesus has won an ultimate victory over death? And like, really, it's not trivial. It's not something that's silly. It's not cliche. I mean, it's real. Jesus actually defeated death. Like, does that excite me? Or have I forgotten how crazy that is? In baptism, Jesus provides for us this grace of salvation. He promises us eternal safety and security with him. Have we forgotten how good that is? People have been forgetting it for a long time. Don't worry, this isn't a new thing that people are struggling with just today. In fact, if we read our Bibles, it shows that it seems like people a long time ago were dealing with the same problem. The Apostle Paul writes to some early Christians in the Roman church. He says, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten how crazy this is? How insane, how wild it is that Jesus saved you? Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death and we hear that and we're like, ooh, get back to the part about life. And he's like, okay, I will. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. This is the greatest victory. It's the most exciting, dramatic thing that has ever happened. When all hope seems lost, Jesus comes in and he saves the day. And we get to experience it. And one of the ways we get to experience it is through the gift of baptism. Baptism is one of the two sacraments that we practice in the Lutheran church. A sacrament is an outward expression, an outward practice where Jesus promises to show up. And it includes physical elements. One of them, you, hear, you see us practice it every single month with the communion. We have the, we have the bread, we have the wine. Jesus promises to show up. And then in baptism, there's the water, but it's not the water that saves you. It's the Holy Spirit that is combined with the water and the promises of God. And in baptism, Jesus promises to show up, the savior of the world with all of his medals, all of his trophy, all of his glory, and he shares it with you. It's so dramatic. It's so crazy. It means that hope is never lost. Has hope ever been lost for you? Do you know what it's like for Jesus to burst in the door and say, it's not over yet? When I was in ninth grade, 14 years old, I was really struggling with this anxiety about what happens after death. I mean, I was so scared. I mean, to a point where like, I couldn't think. I mean, it was this paralyzing feeling where I was like, I, what's going to happen to me? And I grew up in a pastor's family, but I was really, really scared. Like, what happens? And I remember it was around that time that God blessed me with a dream. And it is the most vivid dream that I have ever had in my life. It's probably the only dream I'll ever talk about from a sermon. When I was 14 years old, I had this dream and it was at the end of everything, right? Like the world had ended. And I'm standing outside of heaven's gates. And standing next to me outside of heaven's gates is this person who I went to high school with. And he was a friend, not a super close friend, but he was a friend. We had classes together. One of those people you have those conversations with. You don't necessarily hang out with outside of school, but, but you're kind of, kind of close. His name was Nick. And Nick was one of those guys who got excited about everything. He, in fact, was like the most 
chill person in the world before chill was a way to describe relaxed people. And back in about 2006, this was a cool way to say, that's awesome. He would always say, that's so dank. Some of you are like rolling your eyes. Whether you're older than me or younger than me, I made everybody feel awkward. But it was cool, at least at Waukee High School in 2006. And I'm standing outside of heaven's gates in this dream. And somehow, someway, it came upon us that we were invited in. And I felt like this relief and I felt like this excitement. I'm like, I have life forever. I'm safe. And I look over at my friend Nick and he said, that was so dank. (laughs) I can remember in that dream the braces on his teeth. The most vivid dream I've ever had. Now, fast forward to two years ago. Lost touch with Nick a long time ago. We really didn't even stay close to high school, and I probably hadn't talked to him in over a decade. I'm going through my Facebook scroll, my Facebook feed, and I see that Nick had tragically died in a car accident. And it was just interesting. Even when you haven't talked to somebody in a long time, it just hits you, and it strikes you, and it moves you when somebody dies. I thought about different memories with him, and I thought about that dream. Fast forward another year to last year, I get a phone call and I was asked to do his grandmother's funeral. I met with his family and I had the opportunity to tell his mom about that dream. First time I'd ever shared that dream to anybody. I think this right now is about the third time. And it's not like Nick is in heaven right now and in the presence of God and at peace because of my dream, right? He's at peace and he's in presence with God. It's because Jesus joined him. It's because of what Romans 6 promises us. Jesus has joined us in death. And sure enough, if he joins us in those low places, maybe when we're crying and we're hurting, we need to leave for a second, right? When that happens. Surely, he brings us into life with him. If he joins you in the lowest of the low, he brings you into the highest of the high. If he'll be with you when you're broken, he'll be with you when he's made you whole. It's going to be so dank. It's going to be so great. Is it dramatic enough yet? Is it exciting enough yet? Baptism promises us that Jesus joins us and that Jesus is never letting us go. It's true for Nick. It's true for you. It's true for everyone that you've ever loved and everyone that you've ever lost. Jesus makes this promise. I have joined them and I'm never letting them go. Nick's family is going to see him again. You're going to see your loved one again. We are going to be together again and we'll be in the presence of God because Jesus has joined us and he's never letting us go. I want to focus in really quickly on that first part. Jesus joins us. Go ahead and say that out loud with me. Jesus joins us. Yeah. Jesus joins us, the Savior of the world. He's actually shown up. Now, quite literally, in baptism, Jesus really does join us. Because as you heard about in the reading today, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus had his own baptism. He actually joins us in baptism because he had his own. Here's how it says it in Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. 
Now, it was no mistake that Jesus showed up at the Jordan River. Jesus wasn't just walking by one day and thinking, oh, there's a river. I think I'll go see my cousin John and have him dunk me in the water. There's a reason to this. There's a purpose to this. Remember, this is the series called Matthew Connects the Dots. We're studying the book of Matthew, and we're seeing how Matthew connects these dots back into the Old Testament scriptures. See, Matthew, he was a Jewish man. And Matthew specifically is writing his gospel account about Jesus to other Jewish people. And he's trying to show them that Jesus is the continuation of the ancient Jewish scriptures that tell the stories about God and his relationship with his people Israel. He's trying to show them this Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. This Jesus is the one who's going to fix everything. This Jesus is the one who is going to deliver you. He's trying to show them. And in this baptism, the way that he describes it, you see that he's connecting the dots to show people this Jesus who's showing up in the Jordan River in his baptism is the one that you've been hearing about. In the book of Exodus, there's this grand story. God's people, Israel, they're in slavery in Egypt. And God delivers them. He brings them out of slavery. But in order to get away, they have to go through the Red Sea. God miraculously parts the Red Sea. Moses says, let my people go. And they walk out and they get it through. That's the story that we all know about. That's the famous one. But then after that story, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Hope seems lost. Why would God free them from Egypt if they're just going to wander forever? But God had this promise for them. He promised them, I'm going to allow you to inherit this promised land, a place where you're going to thrive and be satisfied and fulfilled. I'm going to give this to you. Finally, 40 years after they've escaped from Egypt, they're about to enter the promised land. But right before they get there, they get to the Jordan River and it is flooded. Of all times throughout the year, God, really a flooded river now? And God performs another miracle. He dries up the Jordan River. And you can read about this in the book of Joshua. The whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And so for generations, up until Jesus was born, up until Jesus' baptism, these ancient Jewish people would recall the stories about how God delivered his people. He didn't just rescue them from slavery in Egypt. He actually delivered them through the Jordan River to a promised land, to freedom. Let me say that again. He didn't just rescue them from slavery. He delivered them to freedom. And so the Jordan River became this place that was symbolic for new life. It was a place that reminded them, God takes us from old to new. God takes us from slavery to freedom. God takes us from death to life. And here's Jesus in the Jordan River saying, I've come to bring a new kingdom that's going to bring freedom to all. Not freedom just from slavery under Pharaoh, but freedom from slavery to sin and death. I'm the answer. I'm the new life. I'm the gateway. I'm the ground to walk across in the Jordan River. Matthew's connecting the dots and his readers can't miss it. They would have known these ancient Jewish scriptures and they're reading this and they're getting excited. They can't help themselves. But when you read this story, something has to happen, right? Because if you go back just a few verses, here's what John the baptizer is saying about baptism. 
Specifically, here's what he says about his. He says, I baptize those with water, those who repent of their sins and turn to God. And you're like, wait a second. Why is Jesus being baptized? That makes no sense. Jesus didn't sin. What did he have to repent of? John was wondering the same thing. So if you're ever reading your Bibles throughout this year and we're doing read the whole Holy Bible in a year and you're like, I don't get that. John the Baptist had things he didn't understand about Jesus and they had to have these conversations. I want you to take a look at this dialogue between John the Baptist and Jesus. John tried to talk him out of it. Jesus is like, baptize me. And John's like, no, cousin, I love you, but I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? Jesus responds to him and he says, it should be done for we must carry out what God requires. What has God required? What has God asked for? We know that throughout the theme of all of scripture, we know that God asks for righteousness. In fact, God demands righteousness. It's why he sends his son Jesus into this world. And God finds ways for unrighteous people to become righteous time and again throughout the scriptures. And if you connect the dots with Matthew again, we can open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 22. And this is a story in the Bible that nobody likes to talk about. Nobody likes to open this. Nobody likes to preach on it because it's terrible. It's awful. It shouldn't be there. So we think. What does God require? God requires righteousness, and God was requiring righteousness through a sacrifice in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people would make sacrifices. Oftentimes, they would be burnt offerings. It was the way that God allowed for his people to get right with him. It would atone for their sins. Again, this is before Jesus lived. So in the Old Testament, people would give a sacrifice. And in Genesis chapter 22, God is asking a man named Abraham for a sacrifice. The catch is, the sacrifice is his son. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac. Keep in mind, Abraham had been waiting to have a child with his wife, Sarah, until he was nearly 100 years old. God knows that. You hear it in the language that he's using with Abraham here. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. What is God doing? Abraham believes that God's going to provide. It says that in Genesis chapter 22. He's now in this dialogue with Isaac. And Isaac's like, where's the, where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? What's going on? And, God, and, and Abraham says, God's, God's going to provide. He's going to provide. I can't see over these mountains that we're walking over right now, but I know God can. Abraham remains faithful to God. He shows his allegiance to God over, over anything else. And this really bothers us. We're in this tension. Is God going to be a God of grace or is God going to be a God of righteousness? Which is it going to be? And somehow God shows that he can be both. Just before Abraham's about to go through with it, an angel of the Lord appears and in dramatic, exciting fashion, the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham! And in ancient Jewish cultures, when you would say somebody's name twice, it meant you were screaming from the soul with emotion, getting their attention. Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God 
You have, no, you have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram, and he sacrificed it. God provided. God was not bashful or shy in the least bit about how Abraham felt for his son. Your son, your only son, you love him so much. And then take a look at how God the Father speaks about his son at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptized. He comes up from the water. The spirit, like a dove, descends upon him, and a voice from heaven proclaims, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Father God is not bashful or shy about the way he feels about his son. And in the same way that the angel told Abraham, don't you lay a hand on that child. Don't you harm him in any way. The father says to death, says to sin, don't you lay a hand on my child. My son will gladly go. My only son. The one in whom I'm so pleased. The one who brings me great joy. Jesus doesn't just join us in our baptism to say what's up. He joins us in our baptism to save us. To be the only one who has the courage to show up when hope seems lost. To be the one who walks into that fight, who takes on the pain, who takes the wounds, who takes the hurts, the death that could really separate us from what we really need. The father's son. His only son. He joins you in baptism because he can't let you go. He can't get over you. One more time in Romans chapter 6. I want to see this again. Have you forgotten that when we were baptized, we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? Excuse me. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? And that's difficult. The reality is, unless Jesus comes back real soon, every single one of us, we encounter death. And we try to put it off. We try to pretend like it's not something that happens. But the waters of baptism remind us that this is something that happens. But take heart. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Jesus is the one with the strength and the courage to walk in these places of hopelessness, to give you hope, to give you peace, to make you believe that there's more on the way, that it's not over yet. Have you ever been in a hopeless situation? Have you ever believed like the end had come? I think that on Monday night, we ran into this on like a national level. Tell me if you recognize this guy. This is Damar Hamlin. Who knew who Damar Hamlin was a week ago? Does anybody know who Damar Hamlin is now? You can show by, way, by raise of hand. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. In case you don't know, Damar Hamlin uh, plays defensive back for the Buffalo Bills. And in Monday night football against the Bengals, on Monday night, he fell to the ground in front of tens of thousands of people with cardiac arrest. Doctors say that as he was on the field, they actually had to revive him with CPR. They say that he died on the field. They say that he died later in the ambulance. They revived him twice 
this crazy, insane thing. And it's on national live television happening in front of us. The broadcasters don't know what to say. The players are just bending down and praying. They don't know what to do. What are we left to do? When we feel helpless, when it feels like there's nothing else, I think that it's in those moments that we really learn who we are. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if you want to find out what's in your basement, surprise it. And I think that on Monday night, we were surprised. And we found out what's really in the basement of our souls, what's really cried out for from those places, what we really need to suffice for our fears and our anxieties. I mean, facing us right there, live, on TV, for all of us to see. What do we do? As the medical professionals are running out on the field and they're helping him, saving his life, we were left to watch. And I think it's pretty crazy, but pretty telling, what we found in the basement of our souls. Take a look. For 10 minutes, medics frantically administering CPR. Hamlin's teammates wiping away tears. The entire Bills team taking a knee on the field. Players uniting, holding hands and praying. With everybody watching, praying, and hoping for the best. I've never seen anything like it. His teammates reacting. Bills quarterback Josh Allen tweeting, please pray for our brother. And his team sharing a montage of support. As an eerie silence fell over the stadium, fans awaited word of Hamlin's condition or even the fate of the game for over 70 minutes before the league announced a critical late-season matchup was postponed. You could see the, the heartbreak on their face. You could see the worry on their face. Uh, they were in such real pain, and you could see it. Uh, and you knew that they were not going to be able to play football uh, after having gone through something like this. I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say that we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want to, it's just on my heart that I want to pray for it is. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. Um, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, uh, because we believe that you're God and Coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're, we're sad, we're angry, um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace. If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up DeMar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 I, I've never, ever seen that before. I've never seen it. Now, miraculously, incredibly, DeMar Hamlin is still in critical condition, but he's awake. His brain is active. He FaceTimed with his teammates. He died twice. Prayer is pretty powerful. I don't know how else to explain it. I've, I've never seen an NFL football game stopped in the middle, and they're not going to resume it. I, I've never seen an ESPN anchor pray in front of everybody. I, I would dare to think that over the last week, probably more people in this country prayed at one time than ever maybe in the last long time. Now, I'm not saying that every single person who was praying was saying, in the name of Jesus, I believe in Father, God, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
I'm not saying that. In fact, when I was looking through Twitter, I can't tell you how many different tweets I saw where people said, I, I'm an atheist, but I guess I prayed because it felt like the right thing to do. Why? Because when we get down to the basement of our souls, we realize that it's crying out for someone bigger than us, someone bigger than this world, someone bigger than our enemies. And when we get to the basement of life, we find that Jesus is already there waiting for us, joining us. And he'll never let you go. Ever. Jesus joins you in baptism. And don't you know that when Jesus joins you, he will never let you go. It says this in Matthew chapter 3. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. Why has Jesus joined you? It wasn't just an accident. Why is he never letting you go? Because he didn't just walk by the river one day and say, I want to be ducked, dunked. Take a look at the details of his baptism. Who is there? What is involved? You can see through that verse just right there. Obviously, the father's involved. He said, this is my son. I love him so much. The Holy Spirit is present, descending like a dove. Water is involved. Think about it. Think really hard right now. When is the last time in the Bible before this moment where there is the father, there's the Holy Spirit, and it's raining over water? Matthew's connecting the dots. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, the very first verse, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. What does that mean? What's happening? When Jesus is standing in the water and the Holy Spirit is hovering over him in the water, he's saying, I've been saving you. I've been loving you. I've been joining you for all of history. Ever since the very beginning of time, before God even said, let there be light, you were in his mind. You were in his heart. He was hovering over the waters. It's not the water itself that saves you. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit and God's promises that always come true, that will always deliver you from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from old to new. And here's Jesus now in the Jordan River saying, it's happening. It's time. Don't you know this? Jesus calls us into the waters of baptism. He joins us right there. He says, I'll never let you go. And here's how you know. Since before my father spoke me out and said, let there be light. Jesus is called the word of God in John chapter one. Before the father spoke him out with a word and said, let there be light. The spirit was already hovering in the exact same way that it would be hovering over these waters that would invite you into life with me. He's always been thinking about you. He's always been loving you. He's always been joining you. What would make him leave you now? He can't leave you. You can't undo this. You can't redo this. When Jesus joins you, he never lets you go. Oh my goodness, I get excited about this. You hear my voice. 1 Peter chapter 3 puts it this way. The water is a picture of baptism. Speaking of which, right before this, Peter's talking about the water uh, that flooded the earth and how the ark saved Noah and his family. And Peter writes this, that water is a picture of baptism which now saves you. 
not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a popular thing that Christians say sometimes about baptism. We say like, well, baptism doesn't really save you. I mean, baptism's not like the thing, right? The Bible says it does. Well, no, I mean, like, if you get baptized, you better live a good life with Jesus after that. What's up with the control there? Do you get any less salvation from Jesus if someone makes a royal mess of the rest of their life after their baptism? According to the Bible, this is not the only way, but it is one of the ways in which Jesus promises to meet you. And when he meets you, he's never saying goodbye. You cannot undo the work that he's done. I think this is, to me, I think this is why the Bible is very, very open about who gets to get baptized. Because according to 1 Peter, according to the entire theme of baptism throughout the scriptures, you see it in Matthew as well. The one who's connecting Jesus to the Old Testament as the continuation, as the redeemer of God and Israel, bringing them back together. I mean, the theme is very clear. All are welcome into this. Because it is not about your performance. The Bible's so clear. Your performance cannot save you. So then don't you know that your performance cannot condemn you? It's Jesus' work. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His work is complete. Now, I am not saying that that means, okay, well, you got baptized, so then just walk away from faith for the rest of your life and you'll see Jesus in heaven one day. That makes no sense. In Romans chapter 6, the passage that we've been reading a couple of times this, uh, in this sermon already, he, uh, Paul opens that up before he says, so, I mean, if we have this grace from God, so we just keep on going and sinning and then that way we'll get more grace? He says, of course not! Exclamation point! Of course not. That would be like in one of my favorite movies, Interstellar, if Matthew McConaughey gets in the spaceship to save the world and he goes, all right, all right, all right, and then he just gets out. <laughs> I mean, that's like getting baptized and then not living as a child of God. You're, you're missing out. You're missing out on the beauty. You're missing out on the love. You're missing out on the real life. You are standing on the wrong side of the Jordan River and Jesus is saying, come on, it's so much better over here. From slavery to freedom, from old to new, from death to life. Baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line. And Jesus said, go. You're free to run. You're free to live. You. You remember in that great commission, Jesus said, go out and make disciples of all nations. He wasn't just saying that to be polite. I mean, he actually backed it up with the people who were welcomed into the family of God. In the earliest Christian church, we read about it in the book of Acts. And the church grows through baptism. And you might find something really interesting. People don't get baptized because they've lived a good life. People don't get baptized because they have confessed all of their sins. People don't get baptized because they have proclaimed their faith eloquently and beautifully. Sometimes people repent and then they get baptized, but that is descriptive. The prescription is that baptism is the starting line and now you're welcome to live in God's family. It's not start behaving and then you'll belong. It's you belong before anything else. So take a look at this list. This is absolutely crazy. Acts baptisms, the book of Acts baptisms. And we'll study the book of Acts later this year. So 
This is just a very, very brief highlight of it. But in the book of Acts at Pentecost, the first day, the birthday of the church, if you will, 3,000 people are baptized. It doesn't say that they went up and they passed a test of faith. So they're just baptized. And you've got in Acts chapter 8, Simon and the Samaritans. Samaritans, people that Jewish people hated back in those days. They're baptized. There's the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch has not confessed his sins. He hasn't made any proclamation of faith. He simply is reading the scriptures. He hears about it. He says, hey, Philip, there's some water right there. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip's like, let's do it. Yes, absolutely. You're welcome in the family of God. Gentiles are welcome. Other people that Jewish people did not like. Lydia was this rich and wealthy woman. She was a fashion designer. She had all these purple robes. She made purple cool before Prince. And so her household was huge. She would have had multiple families living with her. She was supporting them. And because of her faith, her entire household, her entire household was baptized. There's a jailer in Acts chapter 16. His entire household is baptized based off of his belief. Same thing with Christmas. The entire household baptized off of one person's belief. The disciples in Ephesus Paul, who was once Saul, had this great conversion experience. His baptism is retold in Acts chapter 22. Are you, are you noticing something here? Baptism doesn't discriminate. The family of God doesn't discriminate. You're welcome. You can come in. You don't have to pass a test. This might surprise you, but there are certain things that aren't in the Bible that sometimes we push on people because we're trying to control it, and I don't know why. Age of accountability is not in the Bible. It's not. And if you look at those stories, you will see that entire households are baptized. Entire households. Are you telling me that when they said entire, they meant everybody but the babies? This is important to talk about. And the reason why it's important to talk about is not to win a theological debate. The reason why it's important to talk about is that in the hands of our Creator, we're all infants. We're all little children. I mean, at what point have you passed the test of faith to be baptized if it's an age of accountability? At what point have you become old enough? At what point do you belong? What if your brain doesn't develop like that? What if someone has profound intellectual disabilities? What if they can't communicate it? What if they cannot comprehend the words that are being told to them? Are you telling me that they don't belong in the family of God? Scripture will have its way with you. They belong in the family of God. Baptism is not going to discriminate. Man, woman, young, old, all are welcome in the family of God. And we get so uptight about this. We wonder, like, how much water has to be used? The word for baptize in the New Testament is baptizo. And baptizo, it does literally mean a washing that oftentimes led to immersion. But do you know what baptized was also used for, that word, baptizo? It was used for washing your hands before a meal. And so I don't think that every single time before somebody ate a meal, they would say, oh, I've got to go take a bath. And do you want to know the really practical reason for why a lot of denominations will sprinkle? As Christianity started to make its way up north in the European countries, they had like serious water crises over the winter. And they weren't going to wait until summer to welcome someone into the family of God. And I just got to tell you, if God's grace depends on the amount of water, who are we worshiping? Water baptism isn't in the Bible. Did you know that? Whoa! Here's something that will really mess with us, right? 
Do you know what else isn't in the Bible? Oh, I even feel weird saying it, but I have to. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that doesn't matter because it does. If you are baptized and you don't continue to walk with Jesus, it is like getting out of the rocket ship before it goes. But the reason why I think personal relationship comes after the family relationship is because you belong. The way that I put it is like this. We just had Christmas. Abby and I, we have all these nieces and nephews. We didn't hold back gifts from them because they don't understand Christmas yet. Can you imagine? Well, little Addison, you don't really understand Christmas yet, so we're going to save a few bucks. No, you're part of the family. Some of you, maybe you feel like you've never been a part of a family in your entire life. You are a part of this family. In the family of God, we don't measure people in here like they do out there. All are equal at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. Here's how Paul puts it in the book of Galatians. Oh, one of my favorite passages. It says, all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. You ever gotten done with a workout? You're sweaty and grimy. You just shower. You put on new clothes. You're like, wow. Or maybe you've gotten done with a hard day of work. I don't do that. <laughs> Joking. Then he says this. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Because of baptism. The church is this countercultural place where you might have someone who didn't graduate high school mentoring someone who's earned their PhD. You might have someone who made a royal mess of their history and they're leading and they're discipling, whereas someone who's been very moral is struggling and angry and frustrated, but God's still knocking on their heart. We don't measure our worth in here based on our performance out there. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're one. Because in the waters of baptism, we remember that if we are joined in a death like his, we are most certainly joined in a resurrection like his. No matter what your life looks like, we all end in the same place. But here's the good news. It doesn't end where you think it ends. It ends with Jesus. It ends in the same kingdom. It's true for Nick and his family. It's true for me and my family. It's true for you and your family. It's true for our family. We are made one in the family of God as the father called out over his son, this is my son whom I dearly love. He says the same to you. So I want to invite you today. Maybe you've been baptized before, maybe you haven't. As we go into this closing song, I want to invite you to the waters of baptism. We'll have a station to my right, we'll have a station to my left. You can line up in the side aisles. If you haven't been baptized, you can just let us know. You'll fill out a little piece of paper so we know. And then you'll eventually put it in here so we can give you a certificate. This matters. This is a big deal. We want to give you something for it. But if you haven't been baptized before, we'll baptize you. If you have been baptized before, we can't undo that. God's grace worked. We can't redo it because Jesus was sufficient the first time. But what we will do is we will affirm your baptism which is this powerful experience in which you are invited back to the waters of baptism where you remember, I'm a child of God and I belong. I belonged before the world began when the Holy Spirit was hovering over the, dark, the darkness of the waters. And you'll belong when everything's perfected. Come to the waters of baptism. Remember that you are a child of God.
I invite you to stand on up. Before we head into this, I, I just want to pray over us. Good and gracious God, thank you for the gift of baptism. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. Yes, your only son. Oh, you love him so much, but he gladly goes into our battles for us. He gladly wins and he gladly shares his rewards with us. He gives us his grace. So Lord, now as we return to the waters of baptism or we come to the waters of baptism for the very first time, we remember that your grace is sufficient. We remember that your grace is enough. We remember that it is not our performance that earns our way into your family, but instead it is the completed work of your son, Jesus Christ, that has welcomed us and welcomed all for all of eternity. Those who call upon your name will not be rejected. And in the waters of baptism, we hear you say our name. My child, I'm pleased with you. I love you dearly. Amen. Come to the waters.